It is episode five of the Arbitration Station. I'm Brian Kotick, and this is Joel Dahlquist Kulwari. Hello, Joel. Hello, Brian. It's season two, episode five, season two. I think it, that's important because it makes us sound uh, established. established. Yeah. We talked about this the other day. But what? How many episodes does it take to be established? Well, we don't have a lot of stuff to <laughs> to compare with. No. I think we are. Among the arbitration podcasts that are still running, I think ours is the, the most established. <laughs> yeah, I like that qualification. I mean, we're not like Friends yet, but the TV show Friends, but we are, we're the best among the arbitration podcasts. <laughs> yeah, oh, that are still up and running. I think there's one that, that, that went on for years, but isn't, right. isn't live. So was it like in, in Stockholm now? You're, uh, you're in Stockholm, I assume. I didn't even ask Yes, I'm in Stockholm. It is minus 11 degrees and snowing like a crazy person outside. How is it in Cambridge? Much better. Spring has, has come, which is ironic because I'm moving back to Sweden. In like a yeah, week. so this will be your last podcast from Cambridge. Yeah, so it seems, actually. Uh, that's that's a bit sad, but uh, life, life will go on. <laughs> yes, it will. Um, and you know whose life won't go on? Intra-EU BIT life. Oh. You like what I did there? Smooth segue, yeah. Smooth. Because Acmea came down. I was trying to think of funny ways that, you know, someone dying in a movie could scream out like, Acmea. Um, But I couldn't think of anything. Rosebud. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's like Acmea and Tina Turner or something like that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it but, didn't work. No, but I think didn't. we are not going to do something on Acme, are we? Or no, uh, I just—it's no. a fun fact, and I—it came down, and that's what everyone's gossiping about. So we would be remiss not to just say the word on the podcast. Yeah, but I mean, it, it wasn't super surprising, or at, at least not to me and to the, some of the most people I've been talking to, because obviously this this hit uh, in the international legal academic uh, community. I've been talking to a lot of people, and also both reading and writing some initial analyses on on it, and. Hmm. There, there was no surprise that the European Court of Justice would would strike down intra-EU bits. The problem is that there are about four other open questions that they did not really address. Right. So we're going to have to see a lot of both litigation and academic debate on this. I'm already bored because <laughs> the judgment is very, very short and the operative paragraphs are just like, you know, five or seven that are relevant. And I read them now 12 times and I read 10 discussions about them and i know there are plenty of conferences in the making about it so right i think it's going to be interesting to see because there are other questions put forth that are pending before um the ecj about this issue so i'm it's going to be interesting because i thought the reasoning was actually pretty good in the ecj ruling um maybe you know too good for the people that didn't want the judgment to come down that way so i think it's going to be interesting to see subsequent decisions come out and see how they are if they're able to reconcile with each other if it's just yeah, like inventing yeah, I mean, new the, standards left and right. The related questions here are, of course, one, CETA and all the other extra EU bits that are that are about to be concluded, and, and two, the ECT, where we have a lot of pending arbitrations and also pending set-asides. Right. But uh, both the member states in the of the European Union and the European Union itself is a member to to the ECT. So those those two types of treaties are not you know hit directly by the language, 
because the question asked to the court was only about intra-EU bits, but some of the, the reasoning arguably could apply also to either the ECT and or CETA and similar treaties. And that, so that's still, I think, uh, an open discussion where, where reasonable people seem to disagree. So uh, it will be interesting to see what happens. It's a it's a happy, crazy time right now because, you know, there's a lot of NAFTA discussion right now. A new NAFTA judgment came out. I mean, it's well, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But you're already bored of the whole discussion. So we'll just drop in and talk about our guests. <laughs> yeah, because that, that's actually this is a good it's a good uh, episode we have in front of us, I think, because we both separately in one interview each get carried away. <laughs> I, I get carried away in like a scholarly sense and you get carried away talking about commercial stuff. So we're really right. pl playing our, to our strengths here. Right. <laughs> Who did you interview? Uh, I, I'm dreading pronouncing his name because uh -oh. I know that he, he is he's a regular listener and, and he, he, he mentioned the uh, the segment we did on the pronunciation station. He is he, he is from from Quebec, which is why I dread it. He, his name is Bruno Gelina Fauché. That's that was great. That was great. It was a good middle ground. You weren't saying Louis Vuitton. Um, it was good. Yeah, we'll have to ask him. In any event, he is a PhD student in international law in Cambridge. And he is very interested in arbitration, although that is not his primary research focus. And I talked to him about the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, and specifically about the judges on that court and their involvement in investor state cases. And we sort of as I, as I hinted, we, we got carried away and just jumped into the substance, completely disregarding any kind of structure. So I think what, what the listeners need to know in order to comprehend our very uh, enthusiastic discussion is that the premise for the discussion is a report that came out late last year from the Institute for uh, International Sustainable Development, IISD. Right. Uh, in which they go over uh, ISDS cases, investor state dispute settlement cases, and basically find that ICJ judges are heavily involved and sit as arbitrators frequently. I think they've identified 90 cases where you've had ICJ judges, which is a pretty significant par portion of, of the known cases. And they contrast this with uh, an article in the ICJ statute which says that no member of the court may exercise and blah, 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 any other occupation of a professional nature. So they are basically just asking the question, do we want ICJ judges to sit as arbitrators as frequently as they do, given that we don't know how much time they spend, how much money they get, whether or not they're using court resources and how it influences the court and so on and so forth. And Bruno is a good person to talk to about this because he was a clerk at the ICJ and is uh, I intend to make him our ICJ correspondent because we have more more issues to take up in the future. I wish that's the future of the arbitration station, just people on the ground with like one e finger in their ear being like live from the ICJ, <laughs> like bombs going in the background. Um, no, I heard I heard the the interview and it was it was really, really fascinating to hear. And I think it's something that is on everyone's mind and not necessarily talked about, which is what we do here at the podcast. So. It was it was a good interview. And then we will fly over to Paris, where I talked to Yasmin Mohammed, who is the managing director at uh, Vannin Capital, which is a third party funder. 
Um, and my curiosity got the best of me. So in the beginning, I do get into a little bit of third party funding because I've never talked to a third party funding before. Uh, <laughs> so it was kind of something that I was very interested in doing. And then I really enjoyed the conversation. But the reason why I talked to her and the reason why we contacted her in the first place is because there was an article in the Global Arbitration Review where she was given the epithet of a promoter of France as an arbitral seat or Paris as an arbitral seat. And so I just said that's perfect for the podcast. And so we got to talking about this new English court that Paris has, an English-speaking court that Paris um, has established. And it is going to attract a different type of judge, international cases where English will be spoken and English documents can be submitted um, as a way to promote France and Paris as a new arbitral seat, especially in the wake of Brexit. Um, so we get to talking about that. So I ask everyone for those who aren't interested in the practicalities of third-party funding to just in you know indulge me for a couple of minutes and then we get into paris as an arbitral seat and it was really fascinating talking to her that that trend is is uh, in i wasn't i was about to say everywhere but that's not true of course but you see the similar trends in, in other jurisdictions as well i know in the netherlands and in frankfurt and some other places they are also trying to sort of, and, and Miami, when we talked to Quinn Smith, exactly. that they, they established branches of existing courts where where they are sort of loading up for, for international commercial cases with all the skills that you need there. But it is, of course, unlike Miami, it's, it's more interesting when you have courts that normally don't use English as the procedural language, trying to, to add another uh, tool to their toolbox. Definitely, especially France, who holds on to French for dear life. Yeah, that was a diplomatic way of uh, putting it. <laughs> and then after we've front-loaded on these two very substantive discussions with other people, we go nuts, just you and I, and uh, uh, take the level down a notch or two for, for post-cocktail discussions and happy fun time when we talk about dress codes. I've, I managed to convince you that this is, is worthy of a, a segment. It's definitely worthy of a segment. And we've polled a few people in preparation for this topic. Um, and it was just, you know, erupting at the mouth all the opinions that people have about this. So I think it is on everyone's mind, whether it's substantive or not. It's not. <laughs> but it's, but it's uh, something that everyone probably wants to talk about. Yeah. So if you're very interested in, in public international law, you have one good segment ahead of you. If you're very interested in, in well, partly third party funding, but primarily uh, Paris as a place of arbitration, you have something good to look forward to. If you're more like like uh, Brian and I, maybe you can skip ahead past those two segments and move straight to the dress code discussion. <laughs> yeah, our statistics say the same. So do whatever you want. <laughs> Okay, let's go. First up is Bruno Jelena Fosche. I brought a bunch of stuff, the report. Oh, that, yeah, that's good. I actually reread the report as well to, to brush up. Did you see how, I mean, there, there's nothing in there, apart from listing the, the, know, the 90 cases, it's good work of listing, but the analysis per se is like two paragraphs or something. Yeah. No reference. For me, I see this as more of a policy brief from a think tank than a, an academic article because, you know, the question whether Article 16 is like, you know, would prohibit that kind of. That's the work. statute article. That, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Of the ICJ. And then if you look at like the commentary on Article 16, like from serious academic literature, you see that the drafting history clearly envisaged that 
judges would be able to sit like on the PCA and do arbitration work and so on. And the court has issued, yeah, and the court has issued guidelines itself. And there's a very interesting, I really want to talk about this, a back and forth between the judges at the court and the, the, the UN, the General Assembly, uh, and the Secret- Secretary General and the budget, the Advisory Committee for Budget and Administration. You mean when they were drafting the, the statute? No, in 95. So, so the Secretary General drafted a report on, like, the general condition of service of members of the court, you know, just for, like, salaries, pensions, so on, just to see if it was, it was necessary to update that. But in that was a question of, well, what, what about outside work? Like, yeah. And so the Secretary General kind of asked the member of the court... Uh, an update on that so they, they gave it to him and so he published that to and published the report to the general assembly and in that it's like well members of the court have interpreted that and you know there's there's long-standing practice dating back from the pcij that we members may uh, accept arbitration work subjected to two conditions one is that their work in the court remains their priority and two they should not put themselves in a situation where they they they're Appointed as arbitrating a case, which can ultimately be um, brought to the ICJ. There's also interesting conditions, though, if we look at it from an investment arbitration perspective. So the second, in particular, you, oh man, be I knew you. Were, okay, I have this. I have this in my own. I was like, this is interesting for you because okay, here's the thing. Here's the history of it. You'll be fascinated. This condition was made because back in the 1920s and 40s and 50s. Many of the judges were called to sit up on conciliation commission. Yeah. So these commission usually had a clause saying that if if it fails, then you have a recourse to the ICJ. And so it was really explicit in the in the instrument. The judge could say, well, yes, there's a chance that it's going to be uh, uh, the claim might end up in the ICJ. Yeah, right? and then there's a clear conflict, of course, in that. Uh, yeah, and then that's what they were trying to avoid. And then there's a case as well in uh, you know interstate arbitration. Uh, judge Bejawi, like uh, Guinea-Bissau, Senegal, like he accepted an appointment for an arbitration because it's like, well, there's no way it's going to end up at the ICJ. There's no clause in the treaty. Only one party had made an uh, optional declaration, according to uh, Article 36.2. And then after the arbitral award was rendered. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Senegal, uh, sorry, Guinea-Bissau made a, made its optional declaration, then brought the case to the ICJ, and so now Judge Bajor was like, "Well, now, now I'm conflicted out." But so here's the here's the general like I would say background why this requirement is made. But that's and, and generally interstate arbitration are not subject to um, enforcement proceedings in domestic court, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Immunity and so on. But then you bring it back to 2000, 2010, where where we have investor arbitration, where of course, the the the, the bits or the the you know international term won't say that there's a right to recourse to the ICJ after the arbitration, but we live in a world where, under unsatural rules, for example, you will have enforcement proceedings all over the world. Yeah. And there, you might have an issue in between two countries, for example, about immunity. Uh, you might have you know, issues about denial of justice and so on, which might end up at the ICJ, like we've seen in between uh, uh, Germany and, and Greece, where you have it's a question of procedure in domestic courts, immunity, uh, so on. I mean, it's conceivable that you can have a case where an enforcement proceeding, uh, well, a country would refuse to enforce a, a judgment, and then you could have recourse to the ICJ on various grounds, maybe um, expropriation, denial oh, yeah, of justice. Yeah, yeah. And, and I so mean, on. it doesn't have any, even have to be that that much of a long shot because it could be. I guess there could also be a conflict if the ICJ judge in question is sitting on the tribunal with a person who is then. Uh, 
counsel before before the ICJ in the subsequent proceedings. Yeah. I mean, th- there's a lot of uh, professional co-mingling that, that is involved as soon as you start taking on yeah. ISDS cases. And for me, that's, that was a major part when I was reading this report. Um, it's one of the missing pieces of the puzzle, I feel, because, I mean, the report says, and it was very widely publicized in the media and so on, <laughs> but but in the end, they just say, well, there's a risk that judges might want to be reappointed, so they might rule a certain way. No, no, the actual risk for me was that you might have <laughs> double hatting or revolving door, so to speak. You know, that's very common. We hear that in ISDS world generally. And and the problem is that if you look at the 90 cases that are identified in the report, you can see some cases where an ICJ judge will sit on an arbitration with somebody else. Maybe it'd be Jan Polson, uh, Marcelo Cohen, uh, uh, you know, Vogan Lodes. And these people will simultaneously appear in front of the ICJ as counsels and advocates. Yeah. And so you have this uh, double heading. Uh, pr- and so for me, what's interesting is that this debate has been going on for some years in the ISDS world, whether it's desirable. People have talked about it, Philip Sands, uh, Michael Reisman, uh, Judge Bergenthal, they say, well, you know, that's not desirable. We should try to self-regulate and avoid that practice. And so, but but it always, it always comes back to self-regulation. But at the ICJ, they had a similar issue because the ICJ provides for the appointment of ad hoc judges. So similar to arbitration, if you don't have a judge of your nationality on the bench, you can appoint a, a, um, an ad hoc judge. And sometimes it happened before 2002 that, you know, somebody would act as counsel in one case for a country and be appointed to the court as an ad hoc judge in another case. Mm. And so you would have a person arguing in front of the case and sitting with the bench at the same time. What the court did, though, unlike the ISDS world, is has the tools to address that issue. What, what were those? Well, uh, practice statement. So they they recognized the problem and acted a practice statement, which are not rules. They're more like soft law instruments, but in reality, they're they're enforced. Uh, And so the the practice statement, practice statement seven, says that parties should not appoint as a judge ad hoc somebody who has been counsel advocate before the court and imposes a cooling off period of three years, which was... uh, at the time, it's quite. I mean, it's been criticized by many people, including Crawford, because I mean, it, it, effectively, you have to make a choice whether you want to be a judge slash arbitrator or counsel advocate. And so, from this starting point, it's interesting because the court has addressed this problem. It has recognized, and the you know the adoption of the practice name was based on the recognition that this is a problem because yeah. for the administration of justice, perceived bias, perceived lack of independence, etc. But judges are effectively circumventing this right now by sitting on investment uh, treaty arbitration with people who are appearing simultaneously as counsel. So the very, I mean, it, it's not it's not contrary to the letter of the practice thing, but certainly to the spirit. Uh, Absolutely, it. and maybe even to the wording of Article 16 of the ICJ statute. Yeah, I mean, Article 16. Um, Provides that so no judge shall shall hold a political or administrative function and should not have I have the exact word here uh, any other occupation of a professional nature, and so I, th- I think there's like I mean if you look at the the ordinary meaning of the words if you do a little interpretation, somebody could say well well being an arbitrator is a professional occupation isn't it some people do certainly do that as a full time occupation yeah. 
but but there's very good authority to say that this the, the especially the drafting uh, history of Article 16, which goes back to the, the PCIJ time in the 1920s, that what was meant by that is more like being a partner, a law firm, doing some consulting work, and so on. But Doing arbitration itself was seen as a as an acceptable. Mm. Uh, uh, but then again, as you pointed out initially, arbitration then was different from arbitration now. Definitely. So it brings up the the familiar question, especially in you know, in constitutional law, and how how should we read this <laughs> this provision as it was intended way back when when it was drafted, or in the eyes of how practice has developed in modern days. And and I think you touch on a really important issue because. The court said, well, yes, you know, no occupation of professional nature, but here are the, the guidelines, the criteria we set for ourselves. If we accept arbitration, one will, you know, you have to, it's it's only a uh, subsidiary, you know, practice. You have to dedicate your time, like, full time to the court. It's only occasional appointment. That's the type of language that we've seen. And two, you have to make sure that these cases uh, won't end up in front of the court. And that was okay with like interstate uh, cases back in the days, uh, conciliation commission, etc. But but if you look at it today, and if you look at the report from uh, ISD, like the the uh, International Institute for Sustainable Development, with the 90 cases they identified, I think we have a problem that's very different today than it was in the 1950s or 60s. One, the sheer number of cases. So I, I think some authors like Hosen and and. Uh, uh, you know, Kouvra, they, they, they look at the history of Article 16 and they identify some interstate arbitration, but you can count them on the on your hand, right? They're like very few. But now if you look at Judge Tomka, who's sitting uh, on, on the court currently, he, he has participated in 15 investor state arbitration since he's been on the court. Uh, I mean, the top three, I think, is Tomka with 15, Greenwood with 11, Crawford with 9, and so this is nowhere near the, the numbers that we had, like when Article 16 was enacted. It's also more, I guess, than the number of ICJ cases that they have right. been on during that time. Right. right. And, and, and I mean, there's a question to be asked as well regarding money. I mean, just to put it bluntly, these judges are appointed for nine years. They're elected by the Security Council General Assembly and they have a fixed salary. And that's to ensure their independence. But then, if you sit on fifteen ISDS cases, so most of the time the, the you know it's the, the fees paid to the arbitrators will be undisclosed. But let's say we make an average. I think there was a number estimated like half a million USD for like an arbitration. Judge Tomka has sat on fifteen arbitrations. Yeah. So that you, you make the calculation. Just do the math. <laughs> yeah, that's way more than his salary as as a as a judge. Um, and this brings back a question, and it's not just me or like the report asking this question. It's also the General Assembly. Back in 1996, when the, the Secretary General essentially inquired to the court, like, what, what's your practice regarding Article 16? Like, are, are, are the, the judge also appointed as arbitrator? And the court said yes. So still, note, before the explosion of ISTS cases. Yes, definitely before that. And the court responded to the gen, uh, Secretary General, and they said, yes, we, we sit, uh, you know, with the, 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 the conditions that I've said earlier. Um, so the Secretary General reported to the General Assembly. But then in the General Assembly, you have an advisory committee for the, the uh, for administrative question and budgetary, for administrative and budgetary question, a very long acronym, essentially the expert body for the UN budget. And what they said is they received the report from the Secretary General said, that's all well, like these are nice principles from the court, but there's a lot of unanswered questions. First, how much time do you spend on these arbitration? You know, second, how much are you paid? Like you've nobody has disclosed number. Third, are you using 
court resources, court staff. Uh, and, 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 and I mean, uh, fourth is like you should set more precise guideline with, with regard to that. And so the committee actually then sent its report to the General Assembly and said we should ask the Secretary General to ask the court for more guidance on these very precise questions. What time exactly is spent, money? And so the, the Secretary General, you know, made the, the, the inquiry to the court and the court very defensively. Uh, one year later, said in its annual report to the General Assembly, well, as we've said, we, we do this, and it's a long-standing practice since the PCIJ. And this is an argument I really love because I, the fact that so many states keep on appointing ICJ judges to these arbitrations shows that they accept this practice, and so there's no <laughs> problem whatsoever. Uh, and it stayed, it stayed at this point, and we never had the answer that the, the Budgetary Advisory Committee was looking for, i.e., how much time? How much money? You know, which is an even more interesting question now, given yes. the, the figures presented in the IIST report. I, keep in mind, this debate happened 1995, 1996. I mean, yes. Now today, uh, when you have like uh, 15 cases uh, on the side, you know, how much time do you spend? Are you using court resource to do yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. we, we, this, this is too interesting, and we jumped into this before we could even start in a normal <laughs> <laughs> logical sequence. So let me first ask you, uh, you were a clerk at the court, yep. if we yep. rewind a little bit to give some to give some context. You are now a PhD student here in, in Cambridge, yep. and you are a public international lawyer with an interest in arbitration, <laughs> basically. That, that's a really good... Uh, yeah, that's, I think that's how I would present myself. Uh, my experience at the court was with um, President Abraham, so... I mean, he, he's cited in the report that we just talked about. He's been on one uh, ISDS case, but, you know, that's... that's uh, what, what does it mean? I don't know, and I don't think most people who aren't hardcore international lawyers know, what does it mean to clerk for, for the ICJ? For how long and for whom and under which conditions? And what do you do? So, so there are different... So each judge has usually two clerks. One clerk that will be there for a year, uh, and one clerk will be there for, for two years. These are P2s called, so the, usually it's a two-year renewable for another two years, so usually four years. So you have kind of a, a long-term clerk and a short-time uh, clerk. I was the short-time one, so one-year uh, time with, with Abraham. And I, I would say, although we might debate this, you and I, but I would say it's nothing different than being a, a tribunal secretary <laughs> in, in terms of duties. Uh, uh, you know, you, you without going into detail, because obviously there, there's like a lot of confidential um, um, elements, but it's helping the judge in his judicial function, whether it be researching, summarizing some documents, uh, organizing uh, some of the documents, making timeline, etc., drafting, you know, little memos, memorandum on law and facts, uh, etc. So uh, it's very diverse. And your experience also really depends on which judge and, and, and what the judge ask of you as well. Yeah, and I guess also... Uh on the docket or what, what the court is doing at the time that you were there, if you get to be involved in it. <laughs> Definitely, because you, and it's funny because I had some friends like, oh, you're, you're at the ICJ and there are really interesting cases right now, uh, certain Iran, uh, Iranian assets case, mm -hmm. and, and it's true, they're on the docket, but these cases take, they take years, so you might be there and there's nothing to do on the case because the parties each have 18 months to file their, their pleadings. But what was very interesting when I was there, um, we had three uh, provisional measure cases. And that's interesting because you get to see a case. I mean, provisional measures at the ICJ are, are I would say, much more um, 
you know, substantial than in many other fora. So you get to see a little bit of the case in a nutshell, you know, although it's like the provisional measure criteria, but it's still nice to, to, to get to get to know the case as a, you know, a summary of the case and, and uh, in a very short period of time, even though so provisional measures at the court might be, you know, three, four months, which for other courts or even in domestic, uh, you know, litigation, that's like, if you, if you request an injunction and then four months later, you, you get a, <laughs> an answer. But this, I mean, this is a general, you know, states move slowly yeah, compared to many other. And if you have definitely. two states involved, of course, it's going to be a way different issue. So do they, um, discuss these matters that we started talking about internally i mean of course the judges discuss it because it seems to be practice that the 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 president of the court has to approve when when other judges want to sit as arbitrators so i'm guessing there's a collegial discussion then but is it discussed in like the wider icj context or is it like this this report now hit like a bomb and it's the first time this has been I, I would say so. There's a formal procedure, and then we can talk about maybe more the the other consequences and more the informal uh, responses. But so formally, I think the last formal steps that were taken by the court date back from the the, the little uh, interaction between the court and the, the the General Assembly from 1996, and then 1997 they enacted an official guideline saying that. Uh, you know, uh, judges can act as arbitrators so long as they respect like these two very broad conditions, and they do it like okay, occasionally, uh, uh, something like that. And so we haven't really heard from that since then. Um, there's a formal process in Article 16. Uh, it says that the the uh, any doubt on, on the point whether you know something is a professional occupation uh, shall be settled by decision of the court. And it has happened in the past, but mostly precedent dating back from the 1920s, the PCIG, that the court has had to rule on the on various cases. The whole court. Yeah, the whole court. Uh, and so, for example, we had people who were senators in their, in their home state and whether they could do that. We had question of people um, yeah, uh, acting, for example, in a committee set up by the Undersecretary General for uh, question of prisoners of wars and something like that. But but now there's a practice that before going to the whole court, uh, the judges will usually report to the president, and then uh, if the president clears it, usually it's good. If there's any doubt then or disagreement between the president and the judge, then it goes to the whole court. And Article 16 of the statute clearly says that the whole court has the final say, if they say. But, okay, so reading between the lines here, we there haven't been any whole court decisions on whether or not individual judges are able, which means that the president basically has approved every every instance when when a judge has requested or or informed the court of, of an arbitrator appointment. Yeah, we could, we uh, that's a fair uh, assumption. I think we don't know these these are not public decisions or anything. But we I mean we do have the public statement and the public guidelines issued by the court 1996-7 the court states that it, judges can be involved in arbitration, although it doesn't go into any detail whether it's investment state arbitration, interstate arbitration, uh, what frequency, how many cases, double-hatting, for example. Um, but but that being said, so we have all these cases since, let's say, beginning 2000. But it dates back from before that. So Be Judge Bejawi was involved in an exit case in 1995. And while he was... Um, on a on the tribunal with uh, uh, Prosper uh, Vale, a uh, French professor, that French professor was also arguing not one but two cases at the ICJ. I think the Qatar Bahrain case and the um, Spain Canada cases. And, and and it's not just sequentially; these were simultaneous. So while the case was under deliberation, they were both sitting on the tribunal. So anyway, it dates back from. 
uh, this time, we can assume that the court has conferred on itself this authority. But coming back now to this, to the idea of a more, the, the more, let's say, informal discussion, I think the report that was published like by the um, International Institute for Sustainable Development back in October, or November, sorry, really, I think, kick-started a general debate in the academic um, community. I, I was here in Cambridge, and I, I, at the Lutterpack Center, actually, here, and two fellows mentioned that they had been approached by mainstream media, so not specialized blogs or anything like the, you know, I, I can't remember which media, either The Independent or The, the Guardian, to comment on, on that. Uh, so I think it's fair to say that now it's really something that uh, is under more scrutiny. It, it coincided, of course, also with um, the, the UK losing its its uh, seat. On yes, the court, yeah, you're right. I, th I think there was a general, generally more interest about the ICJ at that time. Yeah, uh, yeah. But you and I, I think, we were in a conference as well last uh, October in, in Netherlands, and somebody was presenting a paper on, on these very issues, uh, on this very issue, sorry, the, the question of judges. It was not so much just about investment arbitration, but about judges having side jobs, so to say. Uh, so the report calls it moonlighting. I don't know. I don't... <laughs> I don't... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, and the term double heading is also quite, uh, quite. Uh, yeah, I mean, they are then normatively charged terms, both of them. I yeah, think. I would say <laughs> it doesn't imply good things. <laughs> and I would say, if we're very picky on the terms, I would say double heading or revolving door, whichever is more used for people who are both counsels and arbitrator, yeah, yeah. as opposed to being arbitrator or judges on two different institutions. Yeah, true, true, true. Uh, yeah. One thing I would like to, to ask you is, uh, obviously it doesn't matter to the court, but maybe it, it matters to outside observers, uh, sp speaking about the credibility here, uh, in the arbitrations, the invest investor state arbitrations, who is appointing the judge, if that matters? Because going over the, the report, it seems very rare that it is actually disputing parties. It's typically either the ICSID uh, uh, Administrative Council or the PCA as an appointing authority, or that the two co-arbitrators agree to to designate an, an, an ICJ judge as the chair. So it's not very common that a party actually uh, appoints an ICJ judge as a co-arbitrator. Um, I would say I think the majority of cases uh, that the ICJ judges are appointed by either an appointing authority or the, the co-arbitrator, you, you're right. But that being said, it's not all the cases. I have a few in mind uh, where, where the, the ICJ judges were appointed by either the claimant or the, the respondent. So the one I have in mind is the most, I would call it, I, I, I know it's charged, but the most outrageous example, uh, you know, we've talked uh, a few minutes back about the, the, um, the, the double hatting. So ICJ judges sitting with uh, arbitrators who are simultaneously arguing in front of the ICJ. So there's a case, I think it's ACMIA from uh, 2011, uh, ACMIA versus the Slovak Republic. And so Judge Tomka was appointed by the respondent state. Because uh, he is Slovakian. Yes. So it's and not because he's Slovakian, but he is no, Slovakian. No, but I mean, yeah, <laughs> the, the surely it's, it, can, it can surely explain that. And, and What's very interesting is that in that case, both co-arbitrators were, uh, were tasked with appointing the, the president uh, of the tribunal. And what happened is that they appointed Vogan Lowe, which is a very prominent uh, practitioner in international law. But for me, what is shocking is that, you know, this double-heading question, on, on, up until the 19th of December that year, Vogan Lowe was arguing in front of the ICJ, in front of Judge Tomka in a case. 
And then Judge Tomka, the very next day, the order is dated 20th, 20th of December, appoints Vogan Lowe as the, the, the presiding arbitrator in that case while the case is under deliberation at the ICJ. For me, that was... And that is after the 2002 um, practice statement trying to, uh, you know, curb on the, the practice of appointing agent and counsel as ad hoc judges. So Judge Tomka essentially... Even maybe during the, 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 you know, the discussion about who to appoint as a presiding arbitrator. I mean, we can, this is definitely uh, a speculation, but you might say, oh, yeah, I, I, I recently saw Vogan Lowe arguing in front of me. I think we should appoint him, you know, as, a, as an arbitrator. very glaring example. Yeah. Look no further if you, if you take issue with, with the, the risk of double-hatting. Yeah. That, and that's not in the report, right? No, and that's what I, one of my criticisms of the report is that it's very good I would qualify it, again, as a policy brief because it lists all the cases. There are 90 cases where ICJ judges being on the court, so actively sitting on the court, were appointed on investment arbitration, 20 judges in total. But it's good then to put the issue, bring the issue to light, but it doesn't provide, I would say, very good analysis of the potential problem. True, so that's but, but to be fair to the good people at the IISD, they also <laughs> say so, don't they, especially in the report, that this is not, this is like a first start right, of a right, conversation right. rather than a comprehensive analysis. You're right. And, and, and the, the, the example I gave you is essentially me, I, I was very curious for me, it was based on the practice statement and the, what I've known for the court, I was like, well, yeah, that, that, that might be a problem. What about then double hatting? And so I, I kind of took the 90 cases, and I'm only halfway through, but I've identified at least now five cases where ICJ judges were appointed as arbitrator. Okay, that's fine. We might say, despite what we've talked before, the evolutions, it's okay, that, that's accepted by Article 16, but they were appointed with people who are arguing at the same time from the ICJ, including uh, Judge Yusuf with, was sitting with Zachary Douglas, who was also arguing. Uh, Judge Bergenthal, no, sorry, yeah, Bergenthal was um, on a case, exit case as well, with Jan Polson, who was also arguing at the same time, and so on, examples like this. We both uh, know a lot of people doing empirical uh, research. This, <laughs> this sounds like the perfect research product to, I, to, to, to map this. <laughs> and, 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 and I should say, I should give you credit, because I, we were discussing this issue, and I, it's something I'm, I'm really interested in, obviously, but... For me, I really, uh, I'm going to push the issue further, perhaps bring empirical elements, but I'm definitely going to seek to, to write something uh, quite soon on this, a more elaborated uh, analysis of this issue. Because it's also, I mean, the discussion, of course, exists in the arbitration community, but it seems that the court is a special animal, partly because it's the International Court of Justice. It's like the, the super, you know, they, they are the, the judges beyond reproach. And it's also, a, for, for many outsiders, it's, you know, it's in the Peace Palace. They, <laughs> it's a UN body. They have the, the strange robes on. We don't really know uh, how the, like the collegial discussions are going because our arbitrators appear at conferences and so on and so forth. But it's still, of course, you know, they, they, they deliberate behind secret doors, but it's still, there's always a discussion in the community, whereas the ICJ feels more like a, a dignified secret club. Yeah, and, and I think you can see this in the, I mean, yes, the aura that the ICJ has. And I think it's reflected in, in the, 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 the awards of investment arbitration as well, because some cases will refer to the uh, case law of the ICJ saying, oh, we, we have to look at previous cases particularly those of the ICJ, as if the, these cases are, you know, carry a certain weight because they emanate from this this noble body where, like... Which, but, of course, the cynical person also would think is part of why ICJ judges so easily get arbitrator appointments. Because right. that's, of course, a, a part of a brand, that if you sit on the ICJ, you're very much sought after as an arbitrator for this very reason. Definitely, definitely, you're right. But, but I would say that the issue... 
it goes goes beyond that because you know I was saying that the ICJ as a, as a standing body has the tools to stop the the double heading you know the practice statement I've talked about but but you see this there's a, a very recent push with uh, CETA uh, as well I think Article Eight Thirty uh, this says essentially uh, once a, an individual will be appointed as an arbitrator this person will have to cease acting as counsel advocate for any other investment treaty arbitration so you see that there's a push towards that but it seems the ICJ had, was on board in 2002 but has kind of since then strayed apart from, from this very good practice that uh, that it implemented for itself. Which, which also, I mean, puts a lot of uh, internal decision-making power in the hands of the, the president of the court. So so the person who is like the, the most supreme of the supreme judges carries a lot of weight. Yes, and I think... Um, I have to be careful because I, I, I have tremendous respect for, for President Abraham. Now he's, he's not president anymore, but... Uh, Judge Yusuf is, and, and this brings, I mean, this is a sidebar, but Judge Yusuf is cited in the report as the fifth or sixth uh, judge with the most investment yeah, treaty this arbitration. This is what I was, what I was going Okay, but, but so I'll, I'll get back to, to this in a second, but I think there's a point to be made that, so maybe the listeners are not aware, but the ICJ elects his own president, vice president. And the president obviously has a lot of say, for example, under Article 16, we've talked about like determining whether something is appropriate or not, not, not just about this, but other uh, provision of the statute also grants him a, you know, a, 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 you know, this role, this first um, kind of say on such certain issue before they go to the court. But of course, judges, when they elect one of their own, Want somebody who perhaps, if you let me put it that way, if you run on a platform that you'll crack down <laughs> on ISDS appointment to all of your your peers and they're all avid, uh, you know, all actively doing arbitration, they won't elect you, right? So there's an incentive then to appoint somebody who will perhaps give some leeway uh, to the other right, judges, right? <laughs> so that's one point. That that's something I think it's important to, to to be aware of. So the other point is also that the president is supposed to be, so all judges are supposed to do that full-time, you know, other professional occupation, as, as stated in Article 16 of the statute. But the president is even more um, supposed to be there on, a, on an actively, I would say. The statute says, for example, that he has to reside full-time in The Hague, which is not a requirement for the other judges. And obviously, he has a lot of responsibility. And this brings the question of, so Judge Abraham just finished his mandate, uh, President Abraham just finished his mandate on last February, 6th of February, and now Judge Yusuf was elected president. And Judge Yusuf is, as I mentioned a, a few minutes ago, one of the arbitrators with the most appointments. Some of them are, are still active. I think I, I checked the list and I think at least three, maybe, or four maybe are still active. Um, to, it's important to mention he does a lot of annulment proceeding in ICS. Yeah, on, yeah. Um, but for me, the question is whether that's compatible with the role of the president, notwithstanding other very interesting legal issue, because the, the, you know, the president of the ICJ is often the appointing authority under many... Yeah, uh, good. Treaties. That was something I also wanted to touch upon. <laughs> that, that brings another layer of complexity to this yeah. like, entanglement of different roles. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If you're, if you're also, you're not just sitting with potential counsel on arbitrations and then hearing them as a judge on the court, you might also be asked or be in a position where you, you can appoint them as arbitrators in other arbitrations. Yeah, yeah. But, okay, on this point, though, I will play devil's advocate because you might say, well, it brings... And, and I think that the, the IIS, IISD report does say that, oh, it might be... Uh, it might create a conflict because you might have to point a rule on uh, challenges. 
But I mean, it's no different than the actual practice of the court itself when it sits in its internal practice, let's put it that way, where uh, there might be a challenge to one of the judges for various reasons, and then the other judges will determine, will, will rule in that challenge. So I, on that point... Ah, there is a difference, though, to, to, be, to be the devil's devil. <laughs> the difference is that when you're in the appointing authority function, you are uh, then potentially appointing somebody with whom you may be sitting yourself in the future, in a future arbitration further down the line. So you may have an interest in incurring favors with people that, who may then return those favors in other arbitrations. So that's different from the situation than from when you're at the court and you're ruling on other judges that are of course your colleagues but they are still there permanently so there's no incentive structure for you to be lenient or to you know try to create some sort of uh, long term uh, I scratch your back situation yeah okay actually I, I can I take it back, can take back <laughs> I, I think I, I think you've convinced me I think you I, I agree with you. I but, haven't but, unpacked fully this this question, but for me, but you yeah. have plenty of time when you write your peer reviewed article <laughs> on, the, on the ICJ judges. Yeah, and yeah, definitely, definitely. I think. Oh no, no, we we, we could do this all night. It's, <laughs> but I think we we have to probably wrap up now. Do you have anything else, maybe that I haven't thought about or that you wanted to to bring up? I know. I think uh, just a recommendation. I think now for the court would be time, perhaps, to implement more than the you know, broad guidelines from the 1990s to have perhaps transparency disclosure about, you know, for example, uh, the, the, the time spent on these arbitration, uh, fees received. And these are not unheard of. Many, I think, professors, for example, in universities where they, um, you know, have arbitration on the side have to disclose the right, right. salary that they receive um, and, and things like that. Things that were called for in 1995 by the advisory committee of the UN General Assembly, which the court simply disregarded but i think and that's also this now to prolong this even further i can't i can't help <laughs> sorry I, I kind of call that. <laughs> what is not mentioned in the report is of course the fact that the majority of the judges do not sit as arbitrators and i would be interested to hear we would never know this of course but i'm guessing that there might be one or two who actually uh, do not agree and are actively turning down appointments because they think that is not the role of an icj judge to also sit in our in arbitrations and we don't hear from them it's true. It's true. It's the silent majority. Perhaps. Yes. Yes. Uh, exactly. So they, it might just be that they don't get any questions and they are pissed off because they want to be yeah. <laughs> to be nominated. But I mean, they're all distinguished scholars of international law, and given the incentives we just talked about to appoint ICJ judges, I'm guessing there's a there's a bunch of people who actively choose not to participate, yeah. and they they might have you know. Be, be interested in an active internal discussion with respect to transparency yeah. and disclosure. But again, I, I think I mentioned it just in passing, but some of them, I, I think it's Judge Bergenthal, has a, there's a famous speech that he did, and I, I think I read the extract from his speech in a very excellent article I should mention. It's called Revolving Door in International Investment International Investment Arbitration by three people, I forget them, from Oslo University. It's empirical work. They, they mapped... I think all, you know, all people involved in, you know, all known investment treaty cases and, and they look at double hatting, essentially revolving doors. We'll throw up a link, I think, on the, on the web page. And it's, it's a great article. Christian Foucault and uh, yes, Daniel yes. Ben and uh, somebody else. Um, Malcolm Langford. Probably. But I remember reading an extract from Judge Bergenthal's speech uh, in there where he was actively saying that, well, this, this is not something good for the system of uh, investment arbitration. So vocally expressing although i should say that he has accepted some appointments and he's on my list of the offenders i think with uh, jan paulson uh, <laughs> but but it's not his choice maybe it's a situation where you know you mentioned the distinction between being imposed for example a third arbitrator that that you 
so happens that argues in front of you and so he might dislike the situation he might even prompt the speech in the first place saying well maybe i should speak out against this practice um but he he he's part of the offenders uh, in my list uh, so far so <laughs> yeah he's not alone which is like a, i guess part of the the point <laughs> <laughs> Right, I think on that note, we have to unfortunately uh, uh, pause this conversation to be continued uh, off air <laughs> right. pretty soon. But for our listeners' benefit, I want to thank you so much, Bruno. Thank you very much. I'm a big fan of the show, so I'm uh, looking forward to the next episodes. Thanks. Yeah, well, I just pressed record, so... Um Let's introduce you. I'm now talking with uh, Yasmin Mohammed. Did I pronounce that right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Um, and you are working at Vannon Capital, which is a litigation funding, arbitration funding organization, and you're the managing director there. Uh, but you, can you just tell me how you got to this position in the, at Vannon Capital and what you did before? Of course. So I was an arbitration practitioner with Freshfield for eight to nine years approximately in the Paris office and two years out in the Dubai office. I did mostly, well, mostly, I did commercial arbitration cases and investment treaties, about a 50-50 split, maybe slightly more investment treaty work than, than I did commercial work. And, um, and one day Van and called. Um, this was almost four years ago. They were looking for um, from somebody with you know, eight to 10 years of experience from the Magic Circle firm who was interested in, in looking into doing um, similar type of work um, to working in a law firm, but with a very different twist to it, right. which was um, third-party funding. And so I joined Band Capital, which is one of the lead third-party funders now across the international arbitration space. And, um, and basically, I deal with their international arbitration. We naturally also fund um, English litigation, American litigation, and Australian litigation mostly. Okay. Some German litigations as well. Did you know anything about third-party funding when they contacted you? Not at all. I had no clue what it was. I had barely heard the term, to be right. honest with you. Um, very few people around me knew much about it. So I, I did a quick research, and I have to say that I found the concept fascinating. I have no, I have no predispositions that anything having to do with finance is necessarily evil. <laughs> a lot of my family are, are perfectly nice and um, our bankers who work in banks. And so I had a good disposition to something that had to do with arbitration and financing. And so when I looked into it, I thought business model seemed amazing. And, and from the little that I had understood, the job description that was being offered to me was simply put, do whatever it is that you have to do in order to get the right cases in, make sure they're the right cases, vet them properly, and then make sure they win at the end of the day um, so that that is can get the return investment that it's expecting, um, being the investor in, in the dispute. And right. that sounded like a lot of fun. I mean, I've heard a lot about how this vetting process works, and I find it fascinating. Um, and I've heard the general concepts of you kind of look at the likelihood of success and and maybe possibly the ability you know, of a... In, of a party that won't be able to pay the cost at the end of the arbitration, but is there anything else that you can kind of lift the veil in this vetting process that you that you do typically do for a case that you're trying to figure out if you're going to invest in? Sure. I mean, each funder has its own vetting process, or the American funders call it underwriting process. Okay. And um, ours tends to be sort of a two-step process. 
the reason why we have brought on board people like me with you know, long years of experience within the kind of firms who, who know what they're doing in these cases is because the aim of the, there's an initial vet and the aim of that vet is to make sure that we only push forward case, cases who have a real chance of getting funded. So we basically are in a position to say no very quickly and uh, manage expectations of the lawyers or clients that we're talking to. And then we have a second step to the process, which is getting external advice into, um, into the mix and going to go pick out from the industry experts of that particular type of case um, in that particular subject matter to advise us um, okay. in our decision-making process. That's one of my favorite parts, to tell you the truth, because although I was not lacking brilliant lawyers to learn from and to work with while I was at Freshfield, right. um, this has certainly really opened up the world of, um, of the experts and arbitrators that are you know, potentially available to advise us and to work with me to, um, to see whether or not we have an appetite for investment. That's kind of what I appreciate most about the job is that you get a new case and you kind of delve into the subject matter to these very, very minutia of details. Um, so you must go even further with these experts. Exactly. I mean, uh, what, what I tell the clients, lawyers, is that, um, you know, my job is to be the red team to their green team, um, poke as many holes as possible or as, you know, that, that exist, and then, um, and then try to you know, find the right answers to this whole. And then suddenly I have my own red team that I bring on board um, that then goes and pokes holes into that particular case theory. And then we have to fill those holes. So it tends to be, actually, uh, I'll put that in a stronger fashion. It, it is in every case that I have funded to date, a very interesting exercise for the case strategy itself mm-hmm. um, because we're in a position at that point in time to sort of flesh out all the potential issues and see whether or not that we have good answers to them. Right. Is there like a magic number that you have, you know, not, not necessarily a formula, because I assume it's all case by case basis, but kind of once you crunch the numbers and everything, is there a percentage that you say, okay, we need to have a 60 cent, 60% chance of success? Or um, is there any sort of number like that that you try and hit when you're... So, so you nailed it. The magic number is 60% chance okay. of success. But what does that really mean, right? right. Um, that might mean something for me. That might mean something for you. So basically, in discussing you know, the 60%, I make sure, and all the people working with me, make sure that the lawyers understand that what we're trying to say there is, is your conviction that this case is more likely to win than not? And obviously, it's a global, it's holistic right. in, in the 60%, but the 60% also, con- also contains a lot of, um, you know, jurisdiction is maybe at 60, whereas the merits is at 70, but 60% is the bottom line. So right. if any of the aspects of the case is below the 60%, this is when we're going to get less comfortable and start drilling into seeing, you know, whether that can be changed or whether those chances can be augmented. Interesting. And how's the, how's the market amongst third-party funders? Is, there, is it pretty competitive? Is it an overt competition? Are there a bunch of fledgling funds that are coming out that are being competitive? How's the market look? So it's, it's, a, it's a very diverse and eclectic market. You have on the market today, and this is just speaking in terms of you know, the type of international arbitration cases that you and I are looking at, um, you have six to seven funders who 
are established, well-known, have the funds, have the proper people in place, right. are dedicated to the, to the funding of these types of disputes. And then you have, I don't know, 20, 30, I don't know how many other funders on the market, um, more or less publicly in existence, that um, you know will have very different ways of looking and funding and, and may or may not have money to fund the cases. And one of the things I talk about a lot at, you know, different types of conferences about the topic of third-party funding or directly to clients and the lawyers that I work with is that funding in and of itself is a tool. Some people like to portray it as, you know, evil because it's financing. Other people will try to portray it as, as angelic because it's giving access to justice. It's neither right. of those things. It's a tool. <laughs> the financial tool. If it's, if it's used properly, it's great for the parties involved. If it's not, then it can give rise to issues. One of the biggest things to look out for is, are you working with a proper funder? Because if you're not working with a professional funder who understands the rules and ethics of the, the lawyers it's working with, if it doesn't understand the commercial needs of the client, if it, if it doesn't have the money to make sure right. that over the three next years of the case, it's going to, be, going to be in a position to fund it, then you know, obviously those are really fundamental issues. And you would be shocked. Um, I know I was that I have never been asked whether we have the money or not. Now, now Bannon is, is, is so large and present now that you would, you would assume that people think that, you know, it's like, you know, it's like asking Jan Paulson if he, if, if he has a law school diploma. Um, <laughs> just to love the comparison. But, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, four years ago, um, you know, Bannon wasn't necessarily as, as large and, and well-known as it is today, and people weren't asking you even then whether or not um, we have the money. So one of the things, if I were, if now we're to you know, turn the tables and I was sitting in the shoes of the lawyers or the clients, the first thing I would do when I was speaking to funders, do you actually have the money to be funding my dispute from beginning to end? Can you prove that to me? Which we can, if asked. You don't really think about that because you think that, I mean, it, you're a business and you have a bottom line and you're probably leveraging and kind of hedging your bet on certain things and expecting a payout here and... That's and you could not have the money at the end. Maybe not your fund, but other funds. Well, exactly. So the Association of Litigation Funders, which is an English association of which Vanden is a founding member, has basically set out, um, articulated a set of rules. We have participated in articulating this set of rules, which both on sort of basic ethical issues you know, like making sure the lawyers understand the terms of the funding agreement and the client has been explained the terms of the funding agreement properly and, and things like that, or never stepping in into the you know, professional relationship of client and lawyer. Um, then there's another set of rules, which are purely financial, whereby we undertake to show in our account, um, I think it's every six months, that, you know, we have the liquidity to be paying for the cases that we're funding over the next two or three years. Interesting. Um, this is obviously paramount because we have seen on the market funders going bust. Um, you know, I personally have picked up cases from funders going bust um, for clients that, you know, had no longer funding on their ongoing disputes. Wow. When, where do you, do you see that it's becoming more and more common? Because um, I know there was a lot of, there's a lot of myth busting that goes with third party funding, I think. One is, like you mm -hmm. were saying, this access to justice, that the only reason why you go to a third party funder is because you're this claimant that mm. really can't bring the claim otherwise, or you're dealing with a, a state on the other side who you know is not going to pay, and therefore you need the funder to like cover your costs. And I think that 
has been dispelled, but um, you know, there's also people that are coming for what's the lowest, for example, what's the lowest amount of money that you would fund for a dispute or do you have a number? So we have a number. It's, it's I think in, in, in more simple litigation type disputes, it's, it's approximately 5 million um, pounds or you know, six, $7 million. Right. In international arbitration cases, it's more towards the 20 million. And, and the reason is because um, actually, there are two reasons. First of all, we spend a lot of time, as you will have understood, vetting these cases. Mm-hmm. Um, we invest money ourselves before we actually sign right. the funding agreement and getting external advisors. We don't just vet, by the way, the legal aspects. We also vet the quantum aspects. So right. I'm going to get a sanity check on whatever quantum report is coming with the case to make sure that you know it's not a, a inventive DCF analysis, <laughs> which we see very often. You know, the number of clients that walk through the door saying that they have a billion-dollar dispute. And when you drill into it, it's a $30 million, which is fine, but it's certainly not a billion-dollar dispute. So we, we definitely bet that. Um, and so all the work that goes into that, plus the fact that if you just look at the statistics that we have on, you know, number of cases won by claimants, you know, say 35 40%, percentage of damages awarded to the claimants, you know, between 30 to 40%, right. then you get to a point in time where you have to build a business model whereby you need to take that into account in, in your expectations and make sure that even in the worst case scenario on the damages, you are still left with an amount of money that can justify you investing the money and leaving the lion's share of the damages for the claimants. Right. Because obviously that's a huge concern for us. Go ahead and funding a dispute and then finding ourselves in a situation where we're walking over the lion's share of the damages and not the claimant. That's not very good for business. Right. That's not very conducive <laughs> to more business. Right. Um, so the, the reason why we tend to turn down cases is not so much the merits of the dispute. It's, it's the financials. So if we don't have the right ratio between how much is this going to cost, you know, say three, four, five million, and you know, the quantum, like the serious, like solid quantum that we can really count on, then we're in a situation where um, we are taking that risk. That's not where we, you know, that's not the situation we want to be in. Right. So I turn away most of the cases because the financial is opposed to the law. Interesting. Well, I mean, I could go down this rabbit hole for hours because I, I do find it really interesting. But I do want to change gears quickly um, to talk about, and the reason why I contacted you in the first place, besides the fact that you're one of the most diverse backgrounds I've ever read, you're Franco-Iranian living in Paris with an American law degree. Is that right? I'm a charming American actor. <laughs> yeah. I, I, anyway, so you were... You can't up in, disagree. <laughs> no, exactly. Um, I, so Iranian, I, I moved out to France. I was a year old um, when the Iranian revolution occurred. And so I was brought up in France going to international schools because my parents were, okay. my father was American educated. And law school was at the Sorbonne, and I specialized in conflicts of laws. And I did my LLM and took the bar in New York and my LLM at NYU Law. Got you. Because the reason what what really struck to me is because they gave you a little epithet in this GAR article that said that you were a promoter of Paris as a seat of arbitration. And I'm paraphrasing now. But it was... and. In the second season of the arbitration station, we're kind of going around the world and talking about different seats of arbitration and the positive and negative sides of that seat and any things that are coming up um, as far as reforms. 
And so when I saw that you were kind of this, you know, pro Paris as a seed, I was I really wanted to talk to you. Um, and the context of that article and where I want to start this next discussion is about this English speaking court that they've set up um, in Paris. And I wanted to know, first of all, what it is and if you know how it works and how it's going to work and whether it's just for litigation or arbitration and kind of set the scene for us if you're able to. Sure, of course. So just maybe a quick word to explain um, the title Promoto Paris <laughs> yeah. is because I um, I have spearheaded um, um, with an enormous amount of help um, the Paris Arbitration Week initiative last year um, and sort of bringing together the larger Parisian institutions and practitioners in, in organizing an event during one week in the month of April where we help or we give the stand, uh, we give the, the floor, the stage, I was going to say, it's more of a stage, um, to the, the practitioners in Paris, to the law firms in Paris, to organize various events from you know, breakfast to cocktails in the evening around the theme of arbitration. And just as a little of promotion of the Paris Arbitration Week, it's taking place on um, the week of the 9th of April this year. Um, starting kicking off in a month's time and um, being kicked off on the 9th of April after the ICC European Conference with a large cocktail that's going to be sort of an opening ceremony of the week. We have, I think, over 45 events already registered on the website. Wow. If you go to www.parisarbitrationweekinoneword.com, you will have access to the full calendar and you will be in a position to sign up to the events that you would be interested in attending. So please join us in Paris. So that was just a little word of promotion for the Paris Arbitration Week. Absolutely. And and um, concerning the um, French um, court that's going to sit in the English language, um, you will have understood that this has already given rise to a lot of discussion and controversy. One of the things that I found most interesting to, to before I go into more detail into what the court's actually going to be doing yeah. is that I have not had the opportunity to comment um, about this court in the various different um, journals. Gar was one of them. And I have found that in every circumstance, my English colleagues and friends were so incredibly negative about <laughs> the French court sitting in the English language, bringing up, you know, arguments about all the reasons why this is bound to fail and <laughs> that this was never going to um, really take off. And um, and obviously this is you know this this is directly linked to the political decision that the French government took in in um, in promoting this court, which is to say that um, you know with Brexit, European countries and France is included in that are expecting an outflux of business um, and therefore litigious business. And, um, you know, France necessarily wants its share in that. So right. the court is not directed or intended to deal with international arbitration. Yes. It is really intended to deal with commercial litigation and to give an opportunity to um, litigants in France to or in Europe to be in a position to litigate their matters in a country where they trust the court system, the enforcement system, and so forth, but to do it in English. Um, and this obviously is, is a big deal because you will know that France is very attached to its 
French language. Yes. And so this was definitely a very big deal for the French to 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 make the step towards you know the, the recognized international language of business, which is English. Right. And um, we're still missing a lot of the details around how the court is actually fully really going to function. But it is a fully commercial court on the issues of litigation. We don't expect there to be um, arbitration and ciliary cases brought to this court at the moment, but this may change in the future. What about enforcement of awards or challenges awards? Would that go into this court, potentially? For the moment, for the moment, that is not the intention okay. of the jurisdiction of this court. Gotcha. This again may change as um, as we are seeing that um, the the remiss and the jurisdiction of the court, the you know, rules of procedure that are going to apply are not necessarily all that determined at the moment. But at the moment, annulment, so anything ancillary to arbitration has not yet been um, included in the jurisdiction of the court. Gotcha. Okay. I think one of the interesting things um, with regard to the court is the is, is going to be that we are going to be seeing the appointment of judges that are necessarily going to be more business-minded than the judges that we usually have in commercial cases in France. One of the issues of French courts, um, certainly as from the perspective of a third-party funder, is that we have seen it with experience um, and not necessarily in cases that we're funding, but you know, on, on decisions rendered, that the amount of damages rarely correspond to the actual losses of the treatment. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine that as a funder, that's not a very attractive proposition for jurisdiction in, 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 terms, of the, of, in terms of purely litigation in France. And so you know, we as Bannon are, are very interested in seeing the development of this court and the type of procedure analysis that this court has in particular with regard to quantum of damages and this will would potentially definitely what our appetite to be looking more closely at funding purely litigation cases in fact right that that isn't do you think they're going to hire people with perhaps a more international background as judges besides the commercial aspect but maybe a common law degree or something like that too because it's obviously going to be international firms and litigants coming before them if it's going to be in English. That's, that certainly seems to be the intention. Right. Um, you know, that's what is, that is what is being discussed amongst the legal community. And as you will know, there is no lack of people in France with experience internationally, with educations that are, you know, partly abroad income and law um, places. So there's definitely a market. Right. For um for for those people and it, it'll, it'll be a question of um you know get, getting to the hiring. French public servants are not particularly well compensated, mm-hmm. so it may be difficult to be pulling away people from um <laughs> you know more lucrative activities. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, so we have on this podcast discussed um this misnomer called arbitration friendly, and I think Paris is one of those places that promotes itself as being arbitration friendly, but also gets called arbitration friendly due to its, you know, the supportive court system and the, the very rich arbitration culture. Um, what are your thoughts on the term arbitration friendly? And do you think that Paris is as arbitration friendly as it has been marketed to be? So 
Paris is definitely an arbitration-friendly jurisdiction, right? When we are looking at the various different jurisdictions across the globe, you know, Paris is amongst the you know, five most arbitration-friendly jurisdictions. I don't think there's any question about that. What I think you're alluding to, and you're forcing me to contradict my title of promoter of Paris. <laughs> Sorry, curveball. Is that curveball. in <laughs> total, total, but it's okay. Call it like it is. Um, we have been seeing um, two things, I think, two separate things have been happening in France over the past couple of years. Um, first of all, we're, we're starting to see French courts um, rendering decisions, um, sometimes however rarely, um, and it is very rare, annulling awards um, for reasons that weren't used previously. Mm-hmm. So there is, in France, um, a rise of um, uh, maybe a lack of trust in the world of arbitration like we've been seeing in the rest of Europe. Now, this is linked both to the investment treaty and to the ECT issues that we're seeing with the European Commission. But France also had its own, you know, sort of national scandal with arbitration with the Pepi affair, um, called L'Affaire Pepi, (laughs) which was a national arbitration in France where the um, arbiters were found to have acted in a way that was less than ethical. Mm -hmm. And that definitely hasn't given arbitration a very good name um, nationally. So... For those two reasons, we've been seeing a bit of a trend in in the French courts where, um, you know, it's less all-encompassing and loving of, an, of arbitration than it used to be, certainly. Right. Um, the second thing is that there has been a reform of the law concerning the enforcement and execution of awards against sovereigns that has tightened the rules. Some would say considerably, some would say has tightened the rules a bit. And um, and this has also given a signal that you know France is maybe slightly less arbitration friendly than it used to be. Some call this the um, the Yukos Amendment, <laughs> um, which um, the French government may have paid a significant amount of lip service to the Russian government in the wake of the Yukos Award. Um, but it certainly has made enforcement against sovereigns more complicated, uh, more difficult. Um, than it was. Right. Um, this all taken together definitely does give you, um, does, does make you reach the conclusion that however amazingly arbitration-friendly France was, it is slightly <laughs> less than it used to be. But because the bar was so high as to how arbitration-friendly France has been for many years, I think that we can safely say that France is still one of the friendlier jurisdictions toward arbitration um right i think and to back you up and to not you know force you to contradict yourself i think it's just the way that we define arbitration friendly um because we were talking on an earlier episode how stockholm also has that title as being very arbitration friendly for a lot of the same reasons the fact that it has a rich culture of arbitration and the courts seem to really defer to arbitration and they have knowledge of how it works and so you get kind of more reasoned conclusions in the court system um but you kind of it has its own flip side right when it becomes such a complex arbitration culture and a rich history of arbitration culture just like you're saying there can be a small taint to the color of the arbitration culture and then people like automatically say it's no longer arbitration friendly 
um, you know, a court will come down from the a decision will come down from the Supreme Court and then everyone throws their hand in the air and says, you know, the tides have turned. But um, of course, it's just a case by case basis. And that's, I, I think it's also I think it's also a, a the nature of um, journalism. Um, you know, nobody's going to read your article if you say France has rendered an award that's slightly more nuanced in terms of enforcement <laughs> than if you if you write an article titled "The Tides of Turns" and France has turned against you know has France has turned against international arbitration. Touche, touche. Good point. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Is there? Do you see anything on the horizon? I mean, why don't we talk for just a minute or two on what's coming up at the Paris Arbitration Week? Are there? some new hot topics that will come up about France and about Paris as a as an arbitral seat that will take place at the conference? Um, yes. Yes, there is. Um, there are um, there are a couple of events. The first one that springs to mind, because I'm speaking at it, obviously, um, <laughs> is one organized by um, by Freshfield um, at Freshfield. Um, where we'll, we're going to be discussing or um, weighing the differences in the difficulties that we're seeing right now in anonymous committees that exist and the anonymous of arbitral awards, investment treaty arbitral awards in Paris as a seat. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we haven't necessarily been seeing the best of either of those worlds. So we're going to be discussing the two. And it's, I think it's called Between a Rock and a Hard Place. Um, and so you'll find that on the on the calendar of the arbitration week um, on Wednesday morning or Tuesday morning. Um, there is another um, conference on just the issue of Brexit and how that is um, changing um, the way that we are looking at arbitration either in the UK and in you know in the rest of Europe and particularly France. Right. There are um, there are several several conference events. Um, around the CIS countries, whether it's enforcement of awards or the types of cases that we're seeing coming out of, um, of the CIS region. There's, um, there's a conference organized on the WADA law and African arbitration in particular. There is a, um, there's a GAR event taking place on the Thursday morning on construction disputes. That's also going to be very interesting. Mm-hmm. And in the evening on Thursday, um, the GAR is hosting for the, um, for the first time the GAR Award in Paris. Um, and I think what is even more interesting for Paris Arbitration Week is that from this year onwards, every year the GAR Award is going to be taking place during the Paris Arbitration Week. So we're very excited about that. That is exciting. You got, you got me thinking about something. If you don't mind me asking about about Africa is I mean, I know that there's a lot of institutions that are kind of budding up in the African region, um, perhaps in the attempt to maintain contain some of their disputes in Africa. And perhaps that would mean take that away from France. Would you think that that is something on the on the horizon or am I just making it up? It's possibly something in the horizon, but it's not something in the short or midterm horizon. Right, right, right. There is the difficulty, as you know, is that there is a lack of trust in the more local and regional centers. Yeah, definitely. Which, um, which, which is basically the reason why most people turn to arbitration in the first place, right? Is to elevate their disputes 
um, on a, a level playing plane where it is outside of the contentious area. And, um, and that's one of the reasons for which I don't think there is going to be a step change anytime soon, right. um, short-term or midterm, in that question. So I think France is going to continue seeing a lot of the um, African-related disputes. Okay. Very interesting. Okay, well, you would just remind everyone one more time where they can find information on the Paris Arbitration Week? Of course. Um, on the Paris Arbitration Week website, www.parisarbitrationweekinoneword.com, and you will find there the full calendar of the events starting on the 9th of April, and you will be in a position through that calendar to register and find information of, on the program of each of those events. All the events that you will see on the calendar are open to the public, so you can register. Some are going to come with a fee, and okay. others are free. Um, but, um, yes, just kind of look. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. We're going to have to have you on again to kind of delve into some other issues. This has been great. <laughs> I'd love to come back. Just let me know. Oh, that sounds good. <laughs> Did you see what they were wearing, Joel? Is the Who question on everybody's mind. <laughs> Who are they? <laughs> they is the amorphous person on a panel or the other person at the side of a room at a conference or the person across from you in a hearing or the person defending their dissertation. Yeah, yeah, it always is. But it's not really kosher to, to talk about it. No, is, I, I mean, that's I have to say that the more I looked into to the dress codes, which, of course, started off as a sort of a joke that we should talk about it on the on the mission to trivialize the podcast. But the more, the more I started looking into it, I realized this is a, it's an excellent topic because it is like it or not, the way we dress is usually important, especially in this field where we are. Yeah. You know, correctly or incorrectly, so much uh, focused on appearance, but there is virtually no discussion about it, neither among junior people trying to, to figure out the rules nor right. among more senior people who are expected to already know the rules. It's just something that you're supposed to know or just pick up by looking at other people. But it's not something that is acceptable really to, to talk about. It's so funny. I went to um, a department store here in Stockholm the other week to buy some new dress shirts. And every this happens to me every time I go into a department store and they say, oh, I'm looking for something for work. And they point, pick out these like reversible shirts with like floral inlining and i'm like no i i need <laughs> colorful white. buttons i need white and maybe blue and it the the more boring the better like i have good, really good, no good. option that, that's 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 a good natural and organic intro because the the white or maybe blue question is something i'm very interested in yes. i read several articles i sent some of them to you you probably did not read them about uh, robert Mueller, the uh, investigator right. uh, looking into a possible collusion or obstruction of justice in, in the us and there are several seemingly serious articles in, in the us press about his impeccable appearance which supposedly signals that he is beyond reproach and incorruptible and they all mention his white button-down shirts with starched collars and the relatively slim suits and discreet ties and the fact that he always he insists on wearing white shirts only, which is something they supposedly talk about reportedly 
at internal meetings that they, if you're working for him as a man, you're supposed to wear white shirts only, which should signal, you know, transparency and a lack of ulterior motives. Oh, I like is the psychology st- behind it. Yeah, and then then I think it's it, it was maybe in the New Yorker they contrasted it with with some of the people working for Trump. You know, the the people who who were who spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on, on eccentric suits and ties and shirts, uh, which would then signal a different kind of personality than Robert Mueller's super, uh, you know, sophisticated and trustworthy bureaucrat. So, the, But this white shirt thing is something that I, I want to talk to you about. Yes. When I first started studying arbitration, which, which was actually not in Sweden, but at Buserius Law School in Hamburg, there was a prominent arbitrator from... Uh, let's say East Asia, who, who visited our class and gave one of those nice how to be successful lectures to students. So nothing on substance as I remember it. In fact, the only thing I do remember is that a student from an, uh, an informal European, European country, and it was not me, uh, asked this arbitrator, so how formal is arbitration compared to court? You know, this is always the one-on-one, like what's the difference between arbitration and litigation? Right. And the arbitrator's response was probably very well nuanced. But what stuck with me and the only thing I remember is that he said, it's actually very informal. Some arbitration lawyers even have lightly colored shirts from time to time. <laughs> you don't always have to wear white shirts at the office. <laughs> and at this point, I was like 23 or something, and I had worn a suit maybe four times in my life. And it had never occurred to me that it would be considered informal to have a light blue shirt. <laughs> right. But the Bob Mueller story really goes to the same point, I think. And now that I've been thinking about it over the years, it's very rare to see senior arbitration male lawyers in shirts that are of, of any kind of color, really. Yeah, it would be it would be a bit weird to see someone in like a plaid shirt. No, it would be a bit weird. But I, I see you in a white shirt as well. Come to think of it, I think. But you you say that you at least own a few light blue shirts. I do own, but stripes, not fully blue. I threw those out two years ago because I talked to someone at the World Bank, and they said full on blue shirts, like you know, the color blue, uh, pale blue. Um, was a a symbol of the working class, and it was just people. He was from the Netherlands, and he said that is a symbol of people who work as a mechanic. Um, and then I started to think about it, and it's true. I mean, blue collared shirts of that color are what mechanics wear. Um, so he said he would never wear that type of shirt because he's not a mechanic. Um, oh, hence the blue collar, white collar distinction. Exactly, which I think is a bit obnoxious, but it makes some sort of logical sense on why you wouldn't have the blue shirt. Um, I'm, and, I'm speaking now in a blue shirt and suit because I'm going to a lecture in London tonight. <laughs> Jesus, I'm screwed. Well, this is the next question. It's the context, right? It's not if you're at work and you said, you know, that professor said that within the office, you could wear something that's of a light color. But it, yes, in the office, you can get away with wearing, you know, a funky tie bar or a tie with elephants on it. But the second you step out of the office or the second you have in some sort of external representation, you should not be having a tie with an animal on it, I don't think. Probably not. But people but, I mean, do. The context also goes to who you are. Because I'm an academic and you're not, obviously, which we explore all the time <laughs> right. on, on, on the podcast. And I think... Well, in the field of academics, the interesting thing is, of course, that academics and practitioners co-mingle so much in the field of arbitration, both in, in the live action, in, in hearings and so on, and but also in conferences and other more 
collegial uh, context. But I think there are largely three schools of academics, and I think they are different from from the practitioners. There are more a wider spectrum for academics to choose from. You have one, those who don't care and just go with you know the least amount of effort. Messy hair and jeans and white socks. Yeah, or just try to comply at least a little bit with with business dress code. So maybe they one step uh, above that in, in terms of dress codes. And then two, you have those who really comply with the practitioner's code and always show up in impeccable suits uh, or very pretty dresses with classy handbags, sometimes even outshining the average attorney and use you know bow ties and three-piece tweed suits right. just to make a statement. And then three, you have those who make a statement by showing that they play by their own rules and they wear band t-shirts or hoodies at their own pleasure even oh, though yeah, they're yeah. speaking in an academic context because they are not you know they are not uh, paid for and they don't have to to play by the, the conservative lawyers code uh, and I, I think it's very rare to see people working for law firms who who show that kind of um, should we say flexibility and dressing right. right i know that some law firms now are if you're in the office and not meeting with a client that a tie is not required and maybe not even a jacket is required, but definitely some sort of like smart casual is is required, like mixed in with a suit uh, every every couple of days. But um, that is definitely something that that has. And then it depends on where you are. I mean, if you're in Miami, you can put on a lime green shirt if you want to. And, you know, a pastel colored tie. Uh, we, cause when I went to law school, it was the funniest thing. Cause we had a moot court and then the, a lawyer from Miami walked in with a salmon, a salmon shirt with a cream suit and was like, like, Arriba, let's do this. And I was like, wait a second, you can't wear this in a moot court competition. <laughs> Are you He's trying like, to sell me a car? Yeah. <laughs> well, see, that's the perception. And I think what people, and the thing about like playing a game in the academic that wears the hoodie, it's not so much as, oh, I'm not going to play by their rules, but it's just, you need to dress in the way that you want people to perceive you and your work. And unfortunately, you got to play the game. So if you're in Europe and you're going to wear a flashy suit and, you know, an oversized suit for that matter, then you're just going to be have some sort of unconscious bias right from the yeah, get-go. Yeah, but there, I mean, there could be some sort of reverse psychology involved as well because the, the, the person who is, you know, the, the law firm partner who, who ignores the dress code rules, in order to do that, that person has to be super smart or profitable. There's, it's always, right. you know, the, you, you, you can tell that he or she would not be with, within the, the partner ranks dressing like that. So it's also you can signal that I'm so good that I can do whatever the hell I want. Basically, I'm above all the the stuff you're doing. But those are rare examples, I guess. Like when I was a college student and I met Gary Borman for the first time, and I had my impeccably iron suit, and he was wearing ripped jeans, and it was just a clear indication of who's who in the room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's a rock star, and, <laughs> yeah, and I'm over eager as hell. <laughs> but we don't we don't have a lot of lot in common, you and I, Brian. But one thing we do have in common is that we both identify as men. And this discussion so far has really been focused primarily right, right, on right, right. it would, of course, be incomplete without a, a female perspective. And I had initially thought we should invite a woman to join this discussion, but it's a shitty thing to ask a professional person to join a podcast solely to talk about clothes. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not very nice. No. So, so instead, since the arbitration station is a, is a pledge signatory, as by the way, you should also be, dear listener. We decided to not give women their own voice, but rather let them speak through us, yes. <laughs> being being men and all. 
So what we did is that we sent a bunch of open-ended questions to, to female arbitration lawyers from all over the world whose judgment we trust. And we thought we'd use their responses as a basis for our discussion to also add a few perspectives because, um, I mean, the main takeaway is that it's way more complicated to navigate the various sartorial layers as a woman. Oh, of course. Of course. So, so many more things to play with. <laughs> From and this is all come again coming from the polls that we took, but it's it's it stems from everything from being subjected to the patriarchy and how heels are just a way to keep the woman down, to women on women crime where a woman will judge another woman for not having makeup on. Uh, yeah. So this really is such a broader spectrum than a man's white shirt. Yeah, it really is. Although I mean that that seems to be sort of a common thread, the white shirt thing, that regardless of gender. Refrain right. from color, don't draw attention to yourself, <laughs> right, right. blend in. Right. That's sort of the basic premise, uh, regardless of whether you identify as a man or a woman, really, I think. Uh, and I have, to, I have to mention this, actually, because it, it hasn't, you know, it, it's not uh, super relevant primarily for arbitration, but just, just as an example. Because one respondent in this anonymous uh, poll that we took, and thank you all, anonymous uh, women, for, for, for helping us out. One respondent uh, showed me an excerpt from mandatory reading as part of passing the bar in a, uh, a Nordic country that is located west of Finland and east of Norway. And it's not specific to arbitration, but it's part of what every arbitration lawyer in the state has to read in order to pass the bar. So it's part of the material for criminal law. And uh, here, when you pass the bar, it's not like in many other states that you have to do that before you practice law. This is the other version where you first practice law and then after a number of years, you get to pass the bar to sort of be upgraded as a more senior lawyer. So in this material for criminal law, and uh, here I'm paraphrasing as usual, but it says that you should coach your client before trial, including their clothes. And I'm translating offhand here from, from the language. A female client can sometimes benefit from a warning to refrain from startling makeup or ostentatious outfits. <laughs> In fact, there are situations where a discreet and colorless makeup combined with a black outfit with something white around the neck may assist the court with better understanding your client's position. Oh, my. <laughs> Obviously God. not written by a woman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's like, don't distract me. And this is in feminist paradise as mandatory reading for oh passing. Oh my gosh. Would you ever coach a female client or perhaps more relevant to our field, a, a witness on how to dress in a uh, hearing? Uh, uh oh, yes. Um, and not, a, but not, a, not like this where it's like, don't wear startling makeup, but I would say, you know, dress professionally, uh, you know, nothing that's too distracting. Like don't wear, uh, uh, horse racing hat into that arbitration, like to that. <laughs> To that extent, then I definitely, but I would never say what colors to wear or how high the neckline should be. Absolutely not. It's startling, really. It is startling. But so, I mean, the, the, th the thing is, is that everything is, and this is what one of my respondents said and what I alluded to just now, which is the fact that heels are a way to keep the woman down in the patriarchy why do women have to wear heels there's no height test this isn't a modeling competition yet all women have to wear heels and all women have to wear heels in a business where you're running around town in certain contexts you're running into and out of courtrooms you're you know working 
12, 15 hours a day in heels? Is that really supposed to be expected of you? And what most women do is that they bring flats or sandals with them in their purse, which is another yeah. thing. And then they change right outside of the courtroom because it's like, okay, now I have to be the person in the heels. But there's no purpose for it and there's no reason for it. And uh, yet it's still considered part of professional dress. Yeah, but I mean, there, there is a reason in the sense that it's a man's world and which sucks, but it, it, it's commercial, commercially reasonable to also play by the rules until you manage to throw over the patriarchy. Yes. I think you you told me something. Are you can you can you talk about it on the podcast otherwise? Yes, I did. It. So an, anonymous on all sides, but basically a professional female practitioner said to a student novice wannabe practitioner to never wear skirt because a skirt uh, because it's a man's world and you need to play by the man's rules, basically. So that meant to only wear pants as a way of symbol, as, you know, proper uh, etiquette for women's dress in arbitration. I don't know where to begin, really, because the instinct is, of course, to be pissed off by this. But at the same time, it's such a pragmatic approach. You know, it, it is what it is. And I this is something I actually I, I asked one of the people that responded to my to my part of the of the poll as well, who works for uh, for female partners, is there a scenario in which the, your female boss that you respect would suggest you change your outfit? Which oh, is based, yeah, that it's a it's a hard question. I don't know if I, I have to ask her if she is comfortable with me with me sharing this, although it's super anonymous. But basically, the answer was no, uh, and and she she really enjoys working for for her bosses. But if there is like a male, you know, lead counsel that you're on the case with, who suggests you have to go change, then maybe still her female boss would just say, you know, this is not a big deal. Go home and go right. back to the hotel and change your outfit. We don't have time to let clothes be in the way of, of the case that we're trying to argue now, which is, I don't know. I don't know where to go with this. It's just, it's just so well, it goes everywhere. And the, the problem is that women have more variety in what they wear. So the chances of them, quote unquote, offending or distracting, even if we're not talking about like the sexuality of it alone, just about, about literally my eye is looking at your neon green headscarf, um, then then there's just more things to do. It's like, what type of purse is a woman supposed to bring into the courtroom? Yeah. Um, can they bring a Hermes bag that costs 10,000 pounds? Um is that a lot? I mean, it shows that they're making enough and that and therefore they are somebody. But, you know, is the client sitting there thinking, oh, am I paying for your freaking Hermes bag? Maybe you should work right. a little harder. Or is opposing counsel and the judge being like this person just flashing their money at me? I don't really respect that. Are you calling the wrong type of attention yeah. by having this bag? There was another thing in the in the Mueller articles that he has like a Casio watch that costs $45. <laughs> Although he's like the most senior lawyer in the government, basically. And he, he, he doesn't talk about it because he's too classy for that. But there are a lot of photos where his watch is showing and it's obvious that he, he hasn't spent a lot of money on his watch. Well, they're treating it like Kate Middleton saying, well, she only wears this type of dress that's 450 pounds. And oh, isn't she like doing well? I mean, that's it's different 
it I get well I guess he's the same right because he's funded by the taxpayers and she's funded by the the constituents of the kingdom True. so um so I guess that's like a nod to that but um I don't I don't know how to act in front of a client I mean I personally don't like to wear a Hermes tie um I only own one it's only <laughs> and I got it as a gift but um <laughs> but I I would never wear that in front of the client because I would never want them to see that I am expending a ridiculous amount of money on a piece of clothing when they're the ones that's technically funding my salary, even though they're not. Yeah, I see. At the same time, that a flashy tie is really one of the few accepted areas in which to demonstrate individual flavor, given that the the, the baseline is so similar. We're, right. we're all supposed to dress the same. And it's the same, of course, with handbags and uh, glasses and watches and, and stuff like that. But another thing, this is, I got a few interesting responses to this question that we posted what about um, cologne or perfume or whatever you call it. Oh, yeah. This is an interesting issue where, of course, the, the sensible people responding all said that, that it's accepted, but it, it can't be too sweet or too strong or too present. Exactly. Do, you, you don't wear cologne professionally, do you? No. I do. And sometimes I feel, I don't know, eccentric or <laughs> it's so sad that we have to think this way but yeah I, the... I don't know because i probably wouldn't if i if i were working for a law firm though it just goes to i mean i have a personal professional philosophy that you try and go through this life with offending people the least um, because you don't know what's going to tick people off and ruin your chances of getting business in the future. So why have your personal, you know, expression of scent be something where someone's like, oh, Joel, the guy who wears too much cologne? Or like, yeah. you know, especially also, if you're wearing like Armani I, I, I understand exchange. your point of view, but also like, boring. Yeah, no. I, <laughs> if, it's... if you're like a carte blanche and you, 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 you're nothing, you're just an empty blank page and that, that the only, that's the only thing you're supposed to be expressing, it, it leaves so little margin to be a person, I think. It's very but boring. I guess that's what you're, what you're selling and I'm not. I'm showing up at conferences and, and using curse words inappropriately. <laughs> I bought, I mean, it was soul destroying. I bought a suit you know, a couple months back and it was the same blue as another suit I had. But if you looked really closely, the fabric had these like lines in it that were very different than the other fabric that I bought in my other exactly same colored navy blue suit. And I bought it thinking like, I'm trying so hard to be that's, different. But. That's interesting because in some of the, or at least one specific response I'm thinking of that I that I got, I got the impression that uh, women are very, very, very good at looking at that type of intricacies and, and details in how other women dress. Do you right. think that applies to men as well? Would you be able to tell your closest uh, colleagues two different blue suits from each other based on the, the the lining or the threading colleagues yes because i see them so much um yeah. but non-colleagues absolutely not i mean you're never that close to a suit to realize what it's more for yourself really to get you through the day <laughs> or else you're gonna wear the same blue suit every day oh yeah okay i'm gonna stay in academia right well, on that note, I think we should wrap it up because we, we can talk about this forever. Yeah, oh, yeah, I have a long list of questions, but that's... Uh, oh, do you want to... Anything anything burning you want to end us on? 
No, not really. And it was just riffing on the same topic that I, I, I don't understand these codes and you apparently do. So I wanted to ask you if I'm, if I'm all right or not, but that we can do that in a, in a different setting. <laughs> all right. Joel's going to go spray some perfume and you should subscribe to the podcast and email us at the arbitration station at gmail.com or tweet at us at the arp station. And we will be back next Tuesday with yet another. <laughs> <laughs> episode <laughs> adjective joel hates adjectives the end <laughs> <laughs>